And at this time, I'll invite you to take a Bible to open it to Romans in chapter 8. It's on page 944 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. And for me to come to Romans chapter 8, in all transparency, um, usually results in a mixture of emotions because this is uh, simultaneously one of my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, There is so much good news in this chapter, uh, but therefore it is also one of the passages of Scripture that I will come to again and again in the most difficult of circumstances. And so for me, to come to Romans 8 is also a reminder of all of the hard times I needed the message contained in Romans 8 to lift me up, to give hope again when events happened at a larger scale um, globally that were beyond comprehension or things happened at a, a local level and a personal level where there was difficulty and this passage was a place of comfort. I shared one time uh, that Romans 8 was not in any way that I remember instrumental in my conversion to Christ and Christianity, but it has been tremendously helpful in keeping me a Christian along the way and reminding me just how good the good news is. And what Paul describes uh, is also from his own experience, uh, medicine, if you will, that he himself needed to take. At the very end of it, he'll talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not nakedness, not persecution, not famine, not danger, not sword. Every word he uses is not a theoretical word for him. It's what he's been suffering on behalf of Christ. He has been persecuted for his work to spread the good news. As he has shared it in the synagogues in the various cities that he's traveled, as he's moved on from there to reach the larger city, it has always invited a mixed response of some people who hear it and say, wow, this is amazing. I want to believe in this. And others who say, you're not allowed to talk anymore. Get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. And have forced him out of town after town. And as he's writing this letter, he's been to several cities. In that, he's taken up a collection of relief funds for the poor in Jerusalem, He's accumulated enough that now he needs to make his trip back to Jerusalem. And he's not yet been to Rome, and he wants to go to Rome, but because he can't physically travel there, because he's going to go in the opposite direction, he's written this letter to the church in Rome. And though he doesn't know them all as well and personally as he does the churches that he himself has planted, he knows that they need this good news too. Just like he's needed it in his experience, he knows that they need this and that all of us as followers of Christ need to know the good news that's contained here in Romans chapter 8. And so now I invite you to follow along. It's a long chapter, but we'll read it in its entirety. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who've had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What good news we all need. And more often than not, I read from verse 26 to the end when I'm with someone who is breathing their final breath to give them the assurance that the God who is for them, who did not spare his own son to bring them into the family, is the same one who gives them the assurance that even in the face of such reality, nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. And it's a wonderful, glorious, and amazing truth. But starting at the beginning of the chapter, what the apostle highlights for us is that there is what a hymn writer later described as the double cure. Augustus Toplady, when the hymn Rock of Ages was written, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, then wrote, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. And that double cure that we need is what's promised for us here in Romans chapter 8. The announcement, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are in him, everything that Brad talked about last week as he went through Romans chapter 7 and Paul acknowledged that there's still a war within and there is still a struggle. But the good news that in spite of that, we can live in the assurance that there is no condemnation. There is no guilt. We are not under the wrath of God against sin. We've been removed from that. We've been saved. But in that desire of true repentance, our goal is not to only be saved from the punishment, but when we've come to see our own sin the way God sees it, we desire not to do it anymore, to be to be able to break free from it. And that's the way it's described here, that we've been set free in Christ, that we're no longer in bondage to the power of sin. And so the good news that the penalty of sin has been removed, but also the good news that the power of it has been broken in your life and mine. And you and I can live by the Spirit. We're not trying to do this in our own strength, and our own wisdom, but He has given us His Spirit so that we can experience the double cure, saved from wrath and increasingly made pure. Some don't think this. So, well, wait a minute. If you give people the assurance that there's no condemnation and there's no guilt and they're not under the wrath, they're just going to go out and do whatever they want to do. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The good news is that because we've been saved, because we're no longer under the wrath and we've been given his spirit, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And the freedom in that regard to finally think, do the things that we wanted to do, but we didn't find ourselves capable of doing. And that's often how the Bible describes freedom. Freedom is not simply the opportunity or the availability to do something. It also includes the ability to do something, right? So that if I now put the Bible down and grabbed one of these guitars and said, hey, I'm free to play this. Well, I'm free in that you're kind of stuck at the moment, and it is right behind me, but I don't know what I'm doing with it. I'm not free to just play you a song because I don't know how to. 
Freedom is, oh no, it's right there. I could grab it, and I know what I'm doing with it. And so I could lead in a song. That's the type of freedom then to use what it can do. But all of the potential of that is unrealized until there is the ability to understand it and to utilize it. And so, as Paul had just described the war within and this tension of wanting to do what God desires and having a flesh that desires to do our own things, he says, but we've also been given the Spirit so that we now, for the first time in our lives, can do what in our hearts we've longed to do. We can follow him. We can resist temptation. He says, in the flesh, it's impossible to please God. Conversely, though, in the spirit, it is possible to do things that honor him. It is possible to live life in such a way and to pursue holiness and justice that brings glory to our Father. To do the things that lead to life and peace. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so we might still be free in some sense that we have the opportunity to sin. But if our hearts have been changed, we'd say, but we've seen where that leads. Sin leads to death. It leads to disruption. It leads to decay. So I guess I could do it, but I don't want to do that stuff anymore. I want to do what leads to life and peace. And so the only way to resolve that war within is to yield ourselves to the Spirit of God to do what he enables us to do, to set our mind on him. This is not just an issue of our own emotions, but in verse 6 he says to set our mind on the spirit and in so doing to know that we'll do the things that please God. And that's part of the good news of the gospel is that the Christ who came and died for us has sent the very spirit that raised him from the dead to live with you and me, that we're not alone. But it's amazing, right? How often do you feel alone? I mean, that was my last night, you know, dealing with two little ones that are like, we're scared, we're alone, don't leave us alone. I mean, I can be with you for a little bit, but I also want you to know you're never alone. The promise is God is always with us. How can he do that, was the question back. (laughs) It's what makes him God. He's with you right now, He's with your cousins in South America. He's with people in Africa right now. He's with people in China. He's the one person that's with all of us. And he's with us all the time. But our experience is still one that struggles to embrace that, to know it is true. When at times everything else tells us we're all alone, but we're not whenever it comes to the sincere desire to follow God and to do his will and to obey him, he gives us the gift of his spirit that says, here's the freedom that I've given you, the freedom to run, the freedom to play, the freedom to dance. You can do what you have always longed to do, but you struggled in your own strength to do it. And that's the good news. This double cure, saved from wrath and increasingly made pure, But he goes on to say there's also a double groan in this good news of what the Spirit enables us to do, that there's no condemnation and now we have the power to do. There's still the reality that we live in a world where there's there's groaning that takes place. And the first one that he describes is the groaning that comes from all of creation. 
Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and one day obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as Paul is describing that, he's saying the entire universe is under a groaning that creates things within the universe that break all of our hearts. This is how Paul understands hurricanes, how he understands death and disease. He doesn't look at it and say, well, this means God's specifically judging this group of people because they did this and so a storm came about. Or you did something wrong in your life and that's why the diagnosis isn't the way you were hoping it would be. That's not how Paul views any of these things. He says, all of creation is under a groaning and longing to be set free. That longing is when someone passes way too young, when someone struggles with the inability to do things that they long to be able to do. So it happens when, and I mean, it's, it's sad when we see that in the hurricanes that have happened recently, you're simultaneously dealing with some of the most beautiful places on the planet, Right? That if you could take a picture and say, where would you love to go for a week and like experience paradise if you could have it? Are then some of the places that are the most vulnerable when something takes place that is a storm. And there's a, there's a groaning in that. There's a, that doesn't make sense. The places we're drawn to that we all want to be are also places of higher risk and higher vulnerability. And we don't look at it and say, what did we specifically do wrong to bring this about? Or how is God punishing us in that moment? But we live in a world where this, these kinds of things happen to all of us. I mean, for me, it was just two weeks ago when I, now our youngest was born. Everything seemed to be going normal, casual, having conversation. They kept asking Amy, on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain? It was a one or a two. And then the moment her water broke, our son's cord came out first. I literally saw a doctor come into the room and jump on the bed and say, this room's about to fill up and people are gonna come in and we're getting you to OR. Because if he comes any further, he's gonna cut off his own oxygen supply. And it was a, how did we just go from <laughs> talking, interacting, to this, and there's not even time to process that. It was literally, this room is gonna fill up, we're on our way. And then I can't be helpful to them in anything they're doing, and so they're like, you're gonna stay out in the hallway. And it's, a, it's a groaning. Anytime we experience that the way God made things and the beauty of how he designed them to be are thwarted or frustrated. But it was a, um, conversely, an amazing opportunity to mark the faithfulness of God and say, I, I didn't just see my son be born, I saw his life be saved when he was born. And that's just amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a humbling thing anyway, but this is a deeper level of, wow. Uh, this past week, I got a surprise phone call um, that Scott Sobey was in town just for a few days to visit a family member, a grandparent whose health is failing. 
And so we were able to do breakfast together, and he extends his greetings to all of you. But as we met, it's exactly 11 months ago to the day that he had flown home in an emergency. I picked him up from the airport at Cleveland Hopkins. His flight was the exact same itinerary the whole way. 11 months ago, he was flying, not knowing if his mom would be alive when he got home. His mom picked him up from the airport this time. But all along the way, it all felt the same. Like, I'm by myself. Oksana's not with me. Kids aren't with me. I'm making all these connections. I'm going. I'm arriving at this time. And part of my ability, two weeks ago, to remain somewhat calm in the midst of that, because they said, you're not allowed in. You have to sit here. And the lady starts... uh, trying to talk to me and see if she can be a comfort to me and she was incredibly kind but I say unfortunately I have to be I'm invited into this situation uh, in different times when other families are going through this I've been in the room that's been rushed in with multiple staff and saying we have to go and that was the case 11 months ago and I saw God do something but all along the way it was why is this happening this is this stuff happens in the world. This week, I don't know how your week began, but at 6 a.m. I was woken up to a text from a family member saying, I don't know if you guys have even heard, but I have a coworker who's in Las Vegas right now with 30 of her friends, and I haven't heard from any of them. That's how this week started, at 6 a.m. For us receiving the news, it started hours earlier for everyone there and involved. And Paul is saying, all of creation is groaning for one day to be set free so that we as people made in God's image don't ever harm each other anymore, that storms don't come and ravage parts of his creation. All of creation is groaning in that way. But then he says, we can't just experience that. What that creates for you and for me in the double groan So all of creation is groaning, but then there's in us, there's an inward groaning. And sometimes when we're confronted with these things, it leads to feelings that we can't put words to. That's what he says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And you know you felt that. When you've heard something that your only response is, there are no words. There are no words. And Paul is saying, yes, there, there are situations, there are things that we are confronted in this broken world that we don't have words for. Even we as Christians don't have words for them. What he's saying, though, is that the same spirit that sets you and me free from condemnation, that gives us power to live life, that same spirit sees and knows all of those groanings. Our inability to express them don't limit God in any way from seeing them, understanding them, knowing exactly where they come from. And then amazingly, he says, you know what he does with them? He prays for you and me, the prayers we don't even know how to pray for ourselves. That's good news. That is amazing news. 
that when we can't even think the appropriate way to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And then that's where it builds on the good news. And he says, we know that the Spirit does that. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What Paul is doing is in part saying, okay, so there's all these challenges that come into our life and we don't know what to say. We don't know even how to pray. But in those moments, there are things that our Heavenly Father wants us to say but we know this. So I don't know why this happened. I don't know why this person did this or why this storm hit at this time and affected these people. I don't know almost all of those things, but in those moments, I have to know something. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe what it is that you and me and Paul writing to a church that he mostly doesn't know says to them, you need to be able to say you know these things that you know that the God who made you is good, that his purposes for you are good, that everything that happens will not thwart his ultimate goals and aims in your life. That's what he means to say, for all things will work together for good. That doesn't mean everything that happens is good. He's just said some things that happen are so bad we don't even know how to describe them. But somehow in that, we can believe by faith that our God who is sovereign over all can work all things according to good. That no bad thing that has happened can ultimately prevent our Heavenly Father from bringing something good about it. He says we can be certain that God will do that in the future. And then when he looks to explain it to people, he says, why? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So his strength in looking forward and saying, we know that God is going to bring this about is because Paul looks backward and says, because we can believe that this is a part of the predestined plan of God. And that word initially for most people doesn't bring a sense of pastoral comfort when you bring up the word predestination. It's not too complicated to figure out. Some words are a little bit harder. We were in the hospital, baby's born, everyone's good, but Amy's not allowed to move around. So they put like wraps on her legs and the nurse says, you know, we're just gonna keep these on you while you're not ambulating. And she knew what that meant and I was, I don't know what that means. So eventually I said, what do you mean ambulating? And she said, walking. We needed another word for walking. Why is walking not a sufficient word? And then she said, you seem to know medical terminology. Are you in, in the medical field? And she's like, no. And I'm like, and isn't that annoying that she knows all the medical terminology? Not being a nurse? But this word's not as complicated. Predestined, beforehand determined. That's just what the word means. However you want to define it, my challenge to you is when you define it, what has God beforehand determined? Pastorally, what Paul is doing is showing us how solid the foundation is. All right, if I can borrow a metaphor from Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says to everyone, if you listen to my words and you build your house on this, you're building on a rock. If you don't, you're building on a sand. And when the storm comes, the house is gone. So borrowing that, if you will, Paul is saying, now listen, I want to tell you that the rock you're building on, it's not a veneer. 
It's not a cover. It's not concrete painted to look like rock. Like when you take a drill and you dig down, it's rock all the way down. It is solid enough for anything you could possibly go through. Pastorally, he's introducing it to give them a confidence that leads to verse 31. Well, what are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He wants us to live life not in fear. Well, how do we live life not in fear when the whole creation's groaning and we ourselves are groaning and things happen that rock our world and we don't have words to express them? Paul can look forward because he can look backward and say, because the God who made us had a plan from the beginning, beforehand determined that all things would work together for our good and that all those who come into the family of the triune God would be saved completely, adopted forever, safe and secure, so that none of the groanings in creation or inwardly can take away the good news of what he's done for us. And that's why he can say, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so our last point is the adopted family of the triune God. And this is how he describes it. Salvation is not just uh, something we've been given. When we understand it in terms of adoption, we realize we've been invited into something. He says we've been given the spirit of adoption. Uh, Look back in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're not supposed to be the ones who are still afraid of everything, still stuck in the slavery to our sin, but knowing that we're now a part of this family, we can know for certain that his love for us is fixed forever. If I, as a sinful human person, can look down on now my children and say, there's not anything in all the world I could imagine them ever doing to make me stop loving them. Do I think the loving capacity of the Heavenly Father is less than mine? And he's saying, if, if he's done all this to bring people into his family... His purpose for them is sure. If you are a son or a daughter of the king, he knows exactly what he is doing with you and for you. He will never let you go. He will never forsake you. Everything has to work by the end out for your good, and he doesn't want you to be afraid. He wants you to live life in the midst of all the circumstances with the boldness that even if tribulation comes or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or all of that. He's saying in this family, when all that's happening, the spirit is interceding for you. The son is interceding for you. The father's love you can never be separated from. This is what you've been invited into, forever adopted into the family of the triune God. And when there's everything else that you're unsure of, be sure of this. What he has done is decisive. When he predetermines something, when he sets his mind on something, he sees it all the way through. That's the good news that Paul is describing for them in Romans 8. Adoption in the first century was primarily uh, pictured by an older couple 
that maybe had accumulated a lot and they had no heirs to give it to. And so they would make a legal decision to identify someone to whom to leave everything they had when they were gone. That's not adoption in the gospel. God the Father had a son who's the heir of all things. So what we have in the gospel is the free, willing choice of God the Father saying, this family's gonna be larger. (laughs) It's gonna be bigger. This goodness is gonna extend farther and wider than anyone can imagine. And when he determines to do it, you or I can't be the people who stop him. That's the good news. Because it's grounded in him in who he is, in what he's decided to do to bring us into it. He's saying in everything else, you might walk out of here and say, I don't know how this is going to happen tonight or tomorrow. I don't know if this person's going to ever come back. You can know for certain that his purposes for you are good and that the love he has for you, you can never be separated from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your message to the apostle who knew so many things he was guilty of, so many sins that he had committed from, that he could experience the freedom of knowing no condemnation and that even in his present state when there were so many challenges to his message, so many people who refused to listen or hear, that he could know for certain of your love for him. Father, help us to know that love. Help us to be your children who have not received a spirit that falls back into fear, but that lovingly trusts you and your purposes for us, that you are good and kind, that what you have decided to do you will do completely and forever. Father, help us be the type of children that are bold in our faith, that live in the hope that you desire to give with the joy that you offer to us, that in a world that is groaning and even in our own hearts that continue to groan, that by a miracle of your grace, we could be known for the hope that we have, the certainty of your love, that enables us to live according to your purpose in the power of the Spirit to be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you that all of us who were lost and lonely and powerless can now cry out hallelujah because we've been brought in. We've been made safe. We've been given a new identity and nothing can ever take it away. In Jesus' name we pray.